If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the first book of the Bible. In fact, it would be the first page of the first book um, for you. Genesis chapter 1. You can also find the text in the bulletin that you have along with a brief outline of today's passage. Today we are starting a new series, one I am very, very excited about. A series in which we are going to look at the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis. This section often called primeval history. Um, I would say that this is the history of the world, of mankind, of sin, and of God's plan of salvation. And what better way to spend this year? Uh, what better topics to contemplate as we see God care for us and provide for us in this new year? And I feel confident in saying that He will in His way. And as we do this, I do want us to think about two themes, um, two overarching themes. There are many in the first 11 chapters, but one, God is the creator and sustainer of life. We will see that very clearly in our text this morning. And then our second major theme, we will see a little bit this morning, but we will start to fully understand at the rest of this chapter and the next, and that is mankind was created by God and dependent upon God for every aspect of their lives. And so as we start this new series, I want us to pay careful attention for those two topics. One, God is creator and sustainer. And then secondly, and tied to it, man is dependent upon God for his creation and sustaining. Many Christians, you know, they wrongly believe, well, they wrongly believe a lot of things, but uh, one area that I, I find young Christians often confused by is on this idea of gospel. What is the gospel? And I've asked that question to many, many students, in fact, and they will tell me the first four books of the New Testament. It's not wrong. Those are the gospels. It is a perfectly legitimate answer. But when we use the word gospel more broadly, we simply mean good news. You and Gelion, good news. Good news that Jesus Christ has been born. He lived, he died, he rose again. That he paid for the payment of sin, of sinners. And when you think about gospel that way, when you, when you broaden it to not specifically the first four books of the New Testament, but the idea that God saves, that God prepares and executes a plan of salvation, we will see that the gospel begins in Genesis 1.1. In fact, the gospel begins in the first four words of Genesis 1.1. God does not get through his first sentence without implanting upon mankind the gospel message. It is for these reasons and many others we are going to start this series and Lord willing complete it. But before I say anything else, let's go to the word of the Lord and let's hear that gospel message, that gospel message of creation from God himself for this is the word of the Lord for you today. I will be reading from Genesis chapter 1 and I'll read the first two verses. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over 
the face of the waters. And the grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Would you go with me in prayer and ask his blessing upon this time? Dear Heavenly Father, in a series on gospel foundations, we pray this morning that you would take us all the way down to the base level. Give us a firm foundation on which we can stand. Give us truth that we can hold on to and that we can confidently stand upon when the waves of this world come crashing around. May we not be like the fool who built his house upon the sand. May we build our house on the rock, and that rock being Jesus Christ himself. Lord, if you don't teach us your word, we will not receive it. If you do not send your spirit, we will not understand it this morning. And so we ask that seeing we may see, hearing we may hear, listening we may believe. We pray this, Lord, because we need it. Oh, we desperately need it. And so we ask, Lord, you bless this time now in the reading and hearing of your word. And we pray all of these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. One of the first and major questions we have to answer as we dive into this book, and this book in particular, is this. Is the collection of writing in Genesis fact or fiction? Or to put it differently... Is it historical narrative or simply a mythical account of moral truth? You may find yourself wondering why this is so important to settle, but rest assured, everything we discuss from here forward will hinge upon how we answer this question right here, right now. For if this book is historically true, if this book tells us what really happened, if this is how things took place, then the way we believe them, the way we understand them, the way we apply them are very different than if these are just allegorical stories that have no real bearing on what took place and they're simply to teach us good things, good thoughts, ways we ought to be. The title itself gives us a clue as to how we're to interpret this. The Greeks titled this book, Genesis, looking at the content of it. And the word Greek, or excuse me, the word Genesis means origin. In Hebrew, and in contrast, it was customary to title a book with what was found in the first few words. Therefore, many of the Jewish people would call this book Bereshith, after the words we just read, in the beginning. And so if we combine the, the two potential titles for this book, and this book should be called Genesis, please don't hear me saying that you need to scratch this out and rename it, it would be something like this. This book is an origin story or history of the beginning. Now, we do not have the time this morning, nor do I have the skill to go into a deep level of textual criticism, historical debate, or interpretive analysis for you to validate what I just said. And so you're going to have to trust me and every single conservative scholar that has ever written. This is a historical book with a historical purpose. It has been written. It has been written by God. And we are to take what it says at face value. 
Trust me on that. Every conservative writer plus the Bible itself, so God. That's where we start. From there, let's start building our foundation. The book of Genesis is not a science book. And so, as I'm sure many of you are aware, there are debates at how best to interpret Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 as it relates to how we see the creation events. And we will seek to handle these topics in a way that is fair and accurate to the Word of God. But if you're here and you're looking for me to get into a major debate on the different understandings of the days of creation, I have my views. I will gladly tell them to you. Let's do that afterward. For the Bible is not primarily a science book. The Bible is a book to be read as God's Word and to teach you, the people of God, everything you need to know for faith and practice. In fact, I would argue you can't answer the question on how the world or the amount of time it took to create the world from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. That being said, I don't think we minimize what God tells us. In fact, I think we see three clear truths in this text, in these first two verses, about God and about the world that we have around us. We are immediately struck with the reality that there is a God who predates the beginning. We will see that in the first four words of our text. We also see that this God is creator of all things as we finish out verse 1. Because of this, we look to God for purpose and for meaning. And then finally, we see that the plan of redemption is woven into creation itself. We see that by looking at verses 1 and 2 as a whole. With that in mind, I do want us to focus on these three truths as we will see it in God's Word. And let's begin with God's eternality and how it is on display in this creative act. For most of the books of the Bible, the author is writing about events that have taken place or will take place in the time of the author. The book of Genesis is different, though. Authorship is credited to Moses, who most scholars believe lived around 1500 to 1400 BC with a little bit of wiggle room on both sides. Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible, which are called the Pentateuch. That was a long time ago. It's hard to think back that far for some of us. However, Moses could not have been at the beginning. He would have had to have received this information from another source, someone who was at the beginning. And the only person there to give him this information was God. People, some people hold to this theory as to try to peg this time down as young earth theory. Young earth creationists believe the earth is around 6,000 years old. And so this creative moment, this moment we're reading of right now, would have taken place somewhere around 4,000 B.C. Old earth creationists hold to a much older dating of the earth, more in line with modern scientific evidence and data, which puts the earth at millions of years old, and depending on who you talk to and what um, science they're using, 
they have a hard time exactly telling you when it was. But regardless of the specific year that it took place, what I want you to see from God's word is that it took place. In the beginning, God. These words tell us two vital truths, two important answers to some really important questions. First, there was a beginning. It happened. There was a creation. Now, this is also to admit there was a time before time in which there was only the triune God. It's one of the most complicated statements I ever heard in seminary, and I will follow it with what my professor told me. Please do not think about that too much. It really will mess with your head. But there had to have been a time before time. There had to have been a a space... Um, I'm going to keep using the word time because that's all we understand as humans. There had to have been a time in which there was only God. And then God spoke, and then there was. The Heidelberg Catechism gets us toward uh, why this is helpful or beneficial. It um, speaks to the Apostles' Creed, and it asks, What do you believe when you say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth? And it answers this, That the eternal Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who out of nothing created heaven and earth and everything in them, who still upholds and rules them by his eternal counsel and providence. This is my God and Father because of Christ, the Son. This language recognizes the eternal nature of God. God's eternality gives him the authority to rule and to reign. It gives him a reason to be trusted. He was there at the beginning. He was the factor. He was the first mover, if you will. Simply put, we can rely upon God because not only was he there, but he's the one that caused it to be. It's why the Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, and who is God? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal. One of the characteristics that the writers of the Westminster Confession give to God is his eternality. Conversely, our world and universe have a definite beginning. And that beginning finds its source in God. It has not been perpetually in motion. This defies biblical teaching as well as the laws of thermodynamics. I had to look that up to remember if that was right, and it is. In fact, Thomas Aquinas, he takes this position and he uses it to argue for the existence of God in his five-fold argumentation for the existence of God. And it is a very good defense of that God must exist based on the created world that we have around us. And I encourage all of you to take a look at that. And so, this tells us that God was at the beginning. But the other thing that these four words tell us is that God is the creator of the beginning. God was actively involved. Not only was he there, he wasn't just some bystander. He was the one creating. And this is important. This is important for our view of God and how God interacts with mankind today. God is not a distant deity who is indifferent or doesn't care about our world. To see this, we could consider just a small section of the three-chapter rebuke God gives Job in his book. Can you hunt the prey for the lion? 
or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in the weight in their thickets? Who provides for the raven its prey or when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? The answer, obviously, is God can and God does. You see, God has wound up his creation, if you will. He has determined it and, and set it how he wants it. And it acts in a way that is accord with its nature. And so when he asks, can you hunt the prey for the lion? The lion can because God made the lion and God made the lion to hunt the prey. Or maybe that's a bit much. You're saying to me, okay, that's fine, but I'd rather hear Jesus. Fair enough. Matthew 6. Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Solomon, wisest man to ever have lived, one of the most splendid kings we read of in the biblical account, certainly would have been adorned with majesty. And God says, I can grow a field of flowers that will be more majestic than Solomon ever could have been. And then, by the way, they'll die. That's my level of watchfulness and care. That's my level of creativeness. That's my level of my display in this world. God reveals himself in this creative world. God proves that he is an active participant in the affairs of this world. And this is important for us today because as we will see later in this chapter and then especially in chapter 2, mankind is part of that creation. When God speaks of creation, you are part of that conversation. And we have to be very careful here. If we take a stance that God does not care about creation, that he simply wound it up and set it on the mantle, and he sits back and watches it play out, we could conclude God does not care. We could have wrong views of sin, wrong views of prayer, wrong views of man's responsibility and salvation, and a myriad of other theological truths. Basically, you can look at any other religion other than Christianity and see the problems you end up with if you have a God who's not actively involved. And the key to rightly understanding this, to put it in its right context, is to see the beginning. It's to see God's eternality on display in creation itself. This is where we must start. We serve an eternal God. Because of this, let's continue our foundation by seeing not only is God eternal and was He there, but He really was the active participant, the first mover in creation itself. And what we learn when we get past the first four words is that God created the heavens and the earth. And because there was nothing but God before this creation, we describe this event best with that Latin phrase, ex nihilo, or out of, or from nothing. And as you will see in the next several verses, God accomplishes this creative act by simply speaking things into existence. 
Many of you are very creative people and you have very creative minds. I've seen your work in your specific fields and they are astonishing. And I do not diminish that one bit. But I've yet to meet any of you who can simply speak things into being. And even if you could, the degree or level or precision or accuracy or beauty or splendor or glory or majesty that that would happen would be very small, wouldn't it? But that's what God did. That's who God is. This thinking about it in this way helps us to begin to understand a little bit about this God. God declares things to be and it is so. And this would have been very important for the Hebrew people. At the time that they would have been reading this account, many pagan views of creation would have already been circulating. Each of them would seek to explain how the world came to be. One of the most popular um, at the time would be the Enuma Elish, which is the Babylonian creation myth. And if you want a a fantasy-based explanation of the origin and creation of the existing world, you couldn't do much better than this one. This This is pretty fascinating stuff. It's a mythical tale of dragons and deities and betrayal and murder and siblings seeking the title of their parents and then being cast down and parts of them being separated into the world that we know it. It makes for a great story. It really does. But all I would argue it does for us is to contrast to this. God was never at risk of losing his control. God spoke and it was. No one ever challenged God. No one ever fought him for his authorship. No one came before God. No one was able to challenge God. We see that in the the story of the downfall of Satan and the angels, don't we? Don't you wish there was more information about it? Yet all were given. Satan rose, God struck them, they fell. End of story. That's how the, the ones that tried to challenge God turned out. But as we read the creation account and we compare it to fantasaical views of the origin of the world, we conclude this God, the God of the Bible, took nothing and created with it. He formed the heavens and the earth by the power of the word of his mouth. And this creation, to quote verse 2, was formless and void, with only the Spirit hovering over the face of the waters. Now we have to again be careful here. I reject the notion that there were two creations, that one one and one two form one creation, and then one three and following are a second creation. I think that can be very harmful to our theological understanding. The way that I reconcile that is to keep reading. If your Bible is like mine, at least in the ESV, between one two and one three, there's a very important word, and. You should read it not so much as God did this and then God did this. You should read it more as then God stopped to breathe. You musicians, those of you who sing or play an instrument, um, you know how important taking those rest moments are, um, especially for a woodwind or brass, where you have to sneak in a breath so you can continue the flow and it's not broken up um, and it doesn't feel choppy. God's taking a breath. God created, it was formless and void, and, and then we get the rest of the account. Reality comes into existence. Space becomes reality. The heavens and the earth take shape. But there's darkness and void. Why? 
Couldn't God in his first breath have done everything? I believe so. So why? Why make a point to tell us that it was formless and void? Tohu avohu. I bring this up because we should be careful. We should be careful to not believe that God is done with a situation where he may be mid-sentence. And I think this is the point he wants us to see. We would be quite disappointed if we looked at the created world in one, two, and didn't let God finish the chapter. And yet, how often is that how we treat God? How often is that how we look at what God is doing? I don't want to read too much into this, and I want to be very careful here. But I do think it's safe to conclude we often assume our situation, our current moment, the current thing that's happening is the greatest, most important, most dramatic thing going on in the history of the world. And there's nothing else that matters. And for you, it may feel that way. And I'm not diminishing that in any means. But think about this. Right now, as of the Google results I did last night, there's an estimated 7.8 billion people today on earth, and God has sustained the same earth since that moment of creation, and he's currently sustained those 7.8 billion people, those that woke this morning, all of it, all of them, and the plants, and the animals, and the ozone, and the sun, and we just start compiling, and compiling, and compiling, and compiling. The reason I think that God makes a point to note that there was void, and then there was creation, is to remind us so many times in our life, be careful to put an exclamation point where God's got a comma. Be very careful to think with eternality in mind. I'm not saying that that situation couldn't be hard. I'm not saying that it, it can't be significant, but I'm just saying, remember you serve a God who has the big picture in mind. And this is just talking about humans. It's to say nothing about the greater expanse. He created the earth and he also created the heavens, the universe. We're told that we can't even count the stars. Can you name them? God can. Psalm 147, 4. He determines the number of the stars. He gives to all of them their names. We can become overwhelmed as we look into space and we think about space and all that's going on, probably because we can't see all of it. When I get overwhelmed by that, I go to Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set into place, what is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? To me, one of the greatest purposes in the created heavens is to wonder how a God who orders and sustains details at such a macro level would care about the small, seemingly insignificant affairs of man. Because God does care about that moment we mentioned earlier, that dramatic, that intense, that really, really painful, difficult, surprising, out-of-the-ordinary moment. All the while in that same hand, making sure the sun doesn't move one degree too close or too far that we don't burn up or melt or, or freeze to death. <laughs> the, once you get into science and you start realizing how precise everything is, <laughs> you'd be praising God every day that we don't float off the earth and burn up in the sun because it's really close to happening every day. That's the God that we serve. That's the God who cares for his creation. That's the God who actively participates in it. And it gets even better, dear Christians, because the third point that I want us to see, and I think the most important point for us to see in these first two verses, is even here, even now, at the very beginning, 
God is weaving in his path and his plan of redemption for you. Look with me one last time at our text as a whole. In the beginning, God. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. We've spoken about the eternal nature of God. We have seen how all things find their origin in God, the Creator. But I want you to see something in this text. God creates out of nothing. God takes what is chaos and puts order into it. We see this as detailed as we will cover the rest of this chapter, as we will look at chapter 2, which is a zoomed-in view of the creation account, focusing specifically on the creation of man. This is all foreshadowing what God plans to do with mankind. How do I prove to you that what God is doing specifically is weaving into this story redemption? Well, I do it in two ways. We've already talked about them both. First, the fact that God is eternal and we are not should cause us to ask questions about life, death, and the afterlife. The writer of Ecclesiastes wisely states in Ecclesiastes 3, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people will fear before him. To ponder about life and death major themes in the book of Ecclesiastes should ultimately turn our hearts and our minds to the eternal God. You see, establishing God's eternity from the very beginning forces us to turn to Him for, the life's, for life's greatest questions. It can only make sense to go to the Creator who was before all creation to seek answers to the questions of why and for what purpose. And knowing we would need these answers. God gave us His holy word to cherish and to live by so that we would put everything of this life and this world in the context of Him. We don't say flippantly when we tell you the answer to your problems, the answer to the difficulty, the answer to that season of life you're in is here, right here in God's word. You are living it as a created being God, as your father and creator, knew you would need help in that situation. So what did he do? He recorded for us 66 books, perfectly preserved throughout the centuries, without fault or without error, so that you would live for and by him. Now secondly, so first, we see our need to go to God. Secondly, and equally as vital for us today, is this concept that God took nothing and created with it. God is a creator God. God is gifted and wise in his creation. We see that in the first move as he makes the heavens and the earth and then fills them. And then, Lord willing, next week, we will stand back and stand in awe as God fills that void with all sorts of wonderful things 
that we need and deem part of our everyday lives. Not to get ahead of ourselves, but you will see in the days of creation, God forms the thing needed, and then God fills it with the thing that needs it. It's beautiful. It's beautiful that fish aren't created before water. God knows what he's doing. He has an intentional plan. Now, if this is the case for creation itself, how much more do you think God's going to do this for you? Do you believe today that God can take your life, which apart from him is dead and lifeless, and transform it into something beautiful and meaningful? Because that's the biblical message. Jesus does this with Lazarus and many others, taking him from death to life. Paul, through the power of the Holy Spirit, does this with Eutychus and others as well. Dead are brought back to life just as a void and emptiness is filled in creation. Why? Show that God can and that God does. And so how does he do it? He does it through the work of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ serves as the literal hands of God. His work accomplishes not only creation, but life for you and for me. Where do I get that, you may ask? I'm glad you asked. I would turn your attention to John chapter 1. In John chapter 1, we read these words. In the beginning, sound familiar, was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then if we skip down just a few verses, we continue. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him, yet the world did not know Him. He came to His own, and His own people did not receive Him. But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, or the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Jesus Christ not only created all things together with the Father and the Holy Spirit, Jesus also took on human flesh. He who was at the beginning of all things and made all things entered into his creation. Have you thought about what a blasphemous thought that is? Have you really considered how far Jesus had to step down to fix what he made? He became man for the sake of mankind. He suffered and died that you and I might live. Why? Because he's the creator God. He takes things that are dark and void and he gives them life. Dear brothers and sisters, my prayer for all of you and myself included in this new year and throughout this study is that you fall in love again with the world that God has made. And more than that, as you do so, you fall more and more in love with the God who made it. His eternality is on display in this created world. All things find their existence in him. And he has given to us the plan of salvation, woven to the very fabric of the world that you and I dwell in. Because of this, let us place our trust in him and seek God to answer the big questions 
of our lives. And if I may, I will leave you with homework for next week. Your task is to spend five minutes in creation this week. Five minutes is all I ask. Looking at and thinking about God made this down to the molecular detail and come back, Lord willing, as we see how he did it. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, it is almost overwhelming to think about. You spoke and it was. There was nothing and then there was existence. The world, the heavens, the earth, the universe, all things, simply because you willed them to be. Not only that, Father, you keep everything down to the molecular level, down to the nth detail in order. And as we study this world, we come to the conclusion it wouldn't take much and it would all go into chaos and fall apart. And yet it won't. Why? Because you have willed that it will remain the way you created it until it comes time to make it again. Father, I pray that this would weigh on the heart of every single one of us here and those joining us online. I pray that we would think about these things and we would think about the enormity of creation itself and in doing so, that would cause us to long for you. I pray that we would seek you for the answers of life and of existence. I pray that we would cling to you as our Savior and the only one who can redeem us from ourselves. We thank you and we stand in awe that Christ was willing to enter his own creation to save us from ourselves. We praise you for your work of salvation that has been woven in from the very beginning. Father, I pray that you will bless us as we study your word and we enter into this season looking into creation itself. Lord, may we all cling to you each and every day, for each and every day is a gift from you. May we not take it for granted. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen.